Blog Talk Radio.
by dialing in at 323-679-0841. Make sure you hit one, and we will acknowledge your last forward numbers. To order the lineup tonight, we'll include first segment, What's Going On in Your World and Community, then followed by the theme for tonight, which is, again, part two, a look at the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S. and the world. So let's get started with this party by bringing in our panelists and analysts for today's program. We first and foremost would like to bring in Brother Anthony and welcome Brother Anthony to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, we next going to bring in our Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome our Brother Haki to Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, how are you doing? My name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness. <clears throat> and of course, you know, my thing is all about institution building. But in the context of institutions, Brother Africa, I got to tell you, one of the things that I find extraordinary is the ability of the so called coronavirus to expose the underbelly of the capitalist system. And in thinking about that, I wrote a few things I thought I would share with the audience in terms of, uh, in terms of the relationship between coronavirus and a lot of uh, kind of seedy uh, events that take place in the context of capitalism that often go unnoticed. But in any event, I uh, wrote this bit, it's, it's, uh, unintended consequences of coronavirus. Now, coronavirus has revealed what, what many of us long understood. That is, capitalism's structural problems are unsustainable and in opposition to democracy. Free market economists espouse the view markets are best in resolving or clarifying issues pertaining to human beings. In the, in the case of coronavirus, mainstream economists oppose any type of intervention in the marketplace that brings disorder to the market. In the case of ventilators, conservative economists see this as an unnecessary intervention because it robs people of choices. Now, choices from the perspective of conservatives is the right of people to decide if expenditures for medical care, in this case coronavirus, is justified based upon one's perception of the virus. Now, of course, one's perception of how to spend and one, excuse me, and in one's perception in terms of, uh, of what to spend, is, of course, is an individual question. Of course, if the perception doesn't take into consideration um, the needs of the community generally, uh, and particularly when you talk about in terms of the ability to have access to health care, what does that really mean in terms, in terms of life per se? Now, in the context of conservative politics, you know, it's understandable why Trump rails against uh, such needed uh, uh, supplies as ventilators. Currently, in the United States is a need of 900,000 ventilators in the U.S. Currently, there are only 50,000 ventilators in the U.S. that currently exist in the U.S. Now, interestingly enough, the markets dictate who lives and who dies. Purchasing 900,000 ventilators would ensure that those unqualified to live would have equal access to life and a clear indication markets are working efficiently. Think about that for a little bit. The underlying supposition of capitalism is very simple. That is, the poor and middle-income people are means to an end. The only value of poor and middle-income people is to work hard and spend their money. Spending of money is good for the economy, but what happens when spending is curtailed? What is the value of the poor people, middle-class people's lives if they have nothing to spend? 
In capitalism, spending habits of poor middle-income people is directly correlated to jobs. Now, according to unemployment statistics, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, unemployment is around 10%. Ironically, when you look at the, the Commerce Department's statistics in terms of unemployment, they have the unemployment at 4.4%. Still, uh, real unemployment, based upon U6 methodology, has unemployment at over 19%. Now, coronavirus has revealed the very real deception of employment. Despite plants closing down and workers on furlough, how can the unemployment numbers not change? There is no question the manipulation of employment numbers serves the interests of capitalists, but in the process relegates millions upon millions without the possibility of jobs. Coronavirus also reveals the absurdities of a system that routinely lies. Many economists expect between 14 and 43 percent of the current furlough workers to lose their job upon the ending of this crisis. Now, why would this be? Very, very simple. The $2 trillion stimulus or the $500 billion slush fund set aside for corporations, we, they, the, corporate, the government expects them to repay that. We have the justification in terms of getting rid of workers. going to be very, very simple. Corporations are simply going to say, listen, we have to pay back these debts, and so therefore we have to get rid of all these workers. Of course, it's very, very convenient because the bottom line is that over the last 10 years, the U.S. economy has been, has been in recession, and despite that, they still continue to employ people in part because of the accounting mechanisms that they use in terms of, you know, you know, making it possible in terms of having access to large sums of money. So now what they're saying now is that even though the government is giving them large sums of money, that is not enough in terms of sustaining employability of, of millions upon millions of people in this country. So clearly what is the, the essence of people's lives in the society? Now, in terms of the African community, one thing that's very, very clear, when I talk about the 14 to 43 percent of the people who are potentially going to lose their jobs, after the so-called crisis has ended, uh, disproportionately, those people are going to be African people. And the question is that we have to think of two things. One, there's a certain amount of instability in terms of, you know, when people, large people lose their jobs. When people lose their jobs, there's no revenue to be had from, from, the, from, from, you know, from the people. The government can't gain those revenues. So the question is, what use are those same people to the government if it has nothing to offer the government? We have to seriously think about that. And secondly, it does have a, de, a very deterrent impact in terms of the overall community, and that is that, you know, if you don't have access to jobs, I mean, it does make it very, very difficult in terms of maintaining families. So clearly there are some problems in terms of, you know, down the road that potentially uh, we have to begin to address at some point. So my position is that we have to have institutions in terms of realistically understanding what's coming down the road. And if we don't have an understanding in terms of what's coming at us, then the possibility in terms of strategizing becomes extremely uh, uh, difficult. So it's very, very important that we understand precisely what this coronavirus means, what it means for its impact on the economy, what it means in terms of the kind of um, games that are being perpetuated against us when it comes to our economic understanding of the system. So clearly we've got our work cut out for us, and it's coming upon us to do the work, uh, to organize, to create those institutions, to make it possible for us to survive under very problematic situations. Nick, Father and Brother Haki, we bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the panelists and the listening audience. Uh, I, my name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. 
Thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And finally, Brother Moses, we have Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, welcome, brothers. Welcome. Um, thank you for having me here again tonight. Um, I'm looking forward to another very informative and powerful show, and I'm happy to be in the presence with, with the fellow panelists and, and with you, uh, Brother Africa. Thank you. All right, all right. Let's get started with the party panelists. Like so, like always, let's start out with the segment on what's going on in your world and community. We'll start off with you, Brother Anthony. Talk to us. What's going on in your world and community? Okay, uh, several things. Um, uh, most in relation uh, to the coronavirus crisis. And some uh, ancillary to it. Uh, Start with uh, at home. Uh, Let's see. uh, uh, Let's see that that there was uh, 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 there was an attempt to try to to test out a coronavirus uh, vaccine on Africans, which uh, was uh, rejected by. this African head of state whose name I don't recall and I had trouble pronouncing, unfortunately. But uh, let's see. But uh, the essence of the statement was that Africans are not guinea pigs. And, um, you know, he uh, he rejected uh, that attempt. Also, uh, there was a demonstration in Ghana I think there's some ongoing demonstration in Ghana's were protesting uh, the U.S. military presence there. And, uh, again, uh, people are, are, are up in arms over that because, uh, you know, it, it infringes on uh, their sovereignty and, uh, and on their uh, ba- other basic uh, human rights. Also, uh, in the midst of this crisis, uh, the U.S. is still uh, pursuing an aggressive policy of regime change in Venezuela. The latest attempt was to charge um, uh, uh, Nicholas, uh, President Nicolas Maduro and uh, the other, me- uh, other members of his administration with drought trafficking charges, which are unfounded and invalid, and it should be noticed that the that that, that the U.S. is the biggest drug pusher in the world. So uh, those are some of the things that are going on in my community at this time. Thank you, brother Anthony. Fine, brother Anthony. We're bringing brother Haki. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world in the community? Uh, uh, brother Anthony, let me just use this opportunity to. Um you know, uh, give my um, uh, love and, and uh, support for all the things a former freedom fighter uh, uh, did in, while he was living. I'm talking about the brother Mondo Wakalinga. Uh, Mondo uh, was a black panther out of uh, Nebraska, Omaha, Nebraska, to be precise. Uh, he was born on May 21st, 1947, and he was also a poet and a, and a playwright. Now, like a lot of African freedom fighters, uh, Mondo, along with um, Edward Pondexter, were uh, uh, set up uh, by the police department, and false evidence was fabricated for the sole purpose in terms of convicting both 
uh, Mongo Wawanga and uh, Edward Pondexter. As a consequence, they were convicted. Now, this shady practice in terms of, you know, um, formatting this, this, this phony evidence uh, was uh, well documented. In fact, one of the things that uh, Amnesty International did, they spent a great deal of time in terms of investigating this case, and they found that not only uh, was the, the FBI uh, complicitous in terms of this, this faulty information, but also the local police was also guilty in terms of concealing information that was vital to, you know, to uh, exculpate, excuse me, excuse me, um, that would free uh, Mondo. Uh, so clearly, uh, this brother ended up spending 44 years in prison before he initially uh, transitioned. Uh, on March 12, 2016, he transitioned. But his contributions, you know, to the movement are, are well documented, and uh, it's important that people understand the, the sacrifices brother made in terms of trying to bring about a, a, a better world. And among the things that he attempted to do, things which are benefit even today, he, he, he fought strongly for a school lunch program for, for, poor, for, for poor children. Uh, he also pushed for op- economic opportunities for African people. He also fought for an end to a two-tier education system. In other words, he sought a quality education system in which you know, all children would be, created, uh, would be uh, educated equally. You wouldn't have a two-tier system where some people have the best education, while other people get a inferior education or a colonial, a colonial education. So his contributions to, to, you know, to humanity, his contributions to his people are well known, and I just think it's important that the people out there understand that when we, we talk about our freedom fighters, we have a great debt. We owe them a great deal in terms of sacrifices, in terms of, you know, standing up and doing that, which is right. It's much easier to, to, act, to acquiesce and to go along with whatever the powers that be want you to do. It's a, quite a different thing to actually take a stand, realizing that taking a stand ultimately means that at some point you may have to pay the price, you know, for your for your for your bravery, for your willingness to stand up. So again, we salute uh, Brother Mondo Wa Lenga in terms of his contributions to the African struggles. Okay, thank you, Brother Haki. Finally, Brother Haki, we have Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, what's going on in your world and the community? I'm waiting for Brother Maurice to respond. We are going to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, it's been an interesting week this week. Um, certainly, you know, the virus has been still the number one contradiction on the planet right now, um, um, short of the class struggle itself. Um, but um, it's, it's very interesting that... Uh, the president wants to go back to work. Uh, he wants to get back to making money, basically. Uh, and this this points out the contradictions between socialism and and uh, capitalism. Whereas um, socialism, is, with the government, will be concerned about the people and the problems the people face, and trying to to help solve the problems the people face. Whereas capitalism is just interested in making money and um it's only interested in solving problems that 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 uh up the cause um impede them being able to make money. Uh they'll solve those kind of problems. But he's willing to accept a collateral damage so to speak. Uh, basically we we just uh write off a bunch of so many people and uh get the get back to work and get back to making money and just accept that there's just gonna be dead people. 
and uh, that's his mentality. And um, thank God that that Dr. Fossey seems to be uh, pretty good at this situation. Uh, uh, he is he hadn't bent bent under the pressure of uh, of Trump and his his outlook. Uh, um, and so I'm hoping that uh, the people will learn this, learn and be able to see through, see through Trump and see what he's all about, and have no confusion about it, and see that the path is between capitalism and the best thing that can happen under capitalism is is um, reforms uh, where you regulate capitalism, where you you regulate the the industry or what, the service or whatever to to where it doesn't harm the people. And uh, try to is what Obama was trying to do with all the environmental regulations and cetera, which Trump immediately uh, came and and unfeathered, so that the capitalists could make more money. And um, so the best you could do on the, with capitalism was regulated, and uh, you have committees and uh, groups that uh, try to plan, uh, and uh, but they plan with the profit motive still still um there uh, but under the socialist government there will be a planned economy and we will be planning this how we're going to attack this virus right now and and uh the economy will shift and gear up towards doing that and because uh, it's a political economy and so i just think that um you know people are waking up i think people are learning what's really going on and uh and seeing through some of the demagoguery and hopefully um things will change um if we just keep organizing and keep keep educating and keep struggling uh and that's the main thing that went on this week i i would like to say that bill withers um i was very fond of bill withers uh he was i thought it was a working class character uh in terms of his songs and his, his um was it i can't write left-handed where the brother was wounded in um in the army in the military or whatever and he had to have somebody write home for him and of course lean on me and use me oh he had so many uh basically good um moral and ethical um uh lyrics in the song and so he will be missed. And um, anyway, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And this is we have Brother Maurice. How are you with us, Brother Maurice? What's going yes. on in your world in the community? Yes, I got a couple things. Um, first thing, before I go into the coronavirus uh, uh, current events that I have, we have this uh, deadly Kafala uh, system going on um, up in up in. Uh, with, with you know, with, with in Africa, basically with our African sisters, um, we recently had a Ghanaian. They call her a maid. Um, she was she was involved in a uh, abusive um, employee relationship with a Lebanese family. Um, she you know <clears throat> she was 23 years old. She she was screaming out on 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 her phone through social media, through a video chat for help. Um, this was on March 14th. She was screaming out for help, and then. A couple of days later, she was found dead in the parking lot underneath her uh, employee's four-story home. Then, then you know, they're trying to say it was uh, suicide, but we all know with com- good damn common sense that it was not suicide. Um, you had a lot of 
issues, uh, pre- previous issues before this sister issue uh, of African women being abused and being tortured and being de- uh, murdered. Um, so, and the article speaks about, uh, and this article is via, you know, the, uh, Al, Al Jazeera, uh, but Basically, the article laid out uh, Lebanon gave out 144,986 permits to Ethiopian women and also gave out uh, 1,284 permits to uh, for Ghanaian women. And they just, you know, uh, due to the labor issues, our, our bogus leaders on the African continent, unfortunately, they put our sisters uh, in this situ- in this instance, they put our sisters in a, in, a, in a daily situation of them trying to find uh, work by going to this, uh, getting involved with this kafala system, but it's a daily system. I hope we have some. Excuse me. I hope we have some African, not African, but some sisters who are on the African continent, or some Africans on the African Africa 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 continent, who can spread the spread the word that stay away from this uh, kafala, kafala system. I know we need employment. I know we need work, but that's a daily system. Um, going in towards the coronavirus news. Uh oh, right before that, I'm sorry, we had another situation I wanna shed light on. Um this is this is in Louis this is in Louisville. Um Louisville, Kentucky. So basically her sister Brianna Taylor, she's an EMT worker and she was killed by a, 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 a barrage of bullets from police during a botch uh drug raid. And she was killed but her husband you know, he he had his gun. He didn't know who the hell it was breaking into his home, so you know he shot back and wounded one of the officers, and he was detained. But he's now home on house arrest, basically. So he had to deal with this. But you know, the cops broke into the wrong home. Um, you know, they was un- they didn't announce themselves. They you know they wasn't in uh, police apparel or whatever the article sp- speaks about. And and that and that's the situation um, still going on among with the coronavirus. We still got this going on. Last but not least, I conclude with this one. We got got something going on. And you know, people. I want to uh, say to African people, um, you got you had a myth going around and saying that uh, our melanin skin would protect us from the coronavirus. Um, well, to 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 face reality as a, as a as a dialectical materialist, you got to look at the real reality of what's going on. And the reality is that Milwaukee is to have nothing but African people being uh, being um, confirmed cases of the coronavirus, and also being um, victims dying from uh, COVID nineteen. I say this, and I conclude. You have the article speaks about. 606 positive diagnoses in the county, in Milwaukee, in this county, what is, uh, I'm trying to get in Milwaukee County, but I can't, it's not, it's not telling me. So basically, um, yeah, Milwaukee, my bad, that's the county. <laughs> so basically, uh, you know, you have more than half of the patients in, in these cases where the victim, uh, where, where the victim race is known, um, and 255 are black, African, as the article stated. And at least four black men in Milwaukee County are known to have died. Um, this is the date of the article on uh, April first. Right now, those numbers probably um, increase due to it. You know, April fifth, right now, Sunday. So that's what I have going on in our community. And I just want to spread the word that as Africans, we got to uh, 
like we said over and over since this thing this thing started on the show, you have to take it serious, um, and you have to use your time to study, uh, study not not study just study any damn thing, study your history, study your uh, study revolutionary people, uh, people who was who who were truth tellers, people who were who were trying to crump, uh, develop solutions to get us out of this. Capitalist, capitalist system. They said uh, that's just, just that's the system. Uh, we're dealing with this crazy system, but the, you got to identify the system we're dealing with, and it's capitalism, um, imperialism. And this is a crucial time for us to uh, study people like Kwame Nkrumah, Kwame Ture, uh Amaka Cabral, Amaka Cabral, Patrice Lumumba, along with your Martin, Dr. Martin Luther Kings. But don't just study the the, the information that. Western media give us about King. Study his uh, his work on combating poverty, on combating combating capitalism. Um, study that work on combating imperialism. Study that work about Malcolm. I know. I, I mean, his earliest speeches are, um, you know, they motivate you, they pump you up. But study his work, what he was doing, um, trying to do um, relationship he was trying to build with the African continent and a system that a new system that we he was trying to build for us. Um, people of, of uh, African origin. Um, I I don't know how much longer we can express on this show and emphasize on this show to say you have to organize, you have to study. But this is a crucial time. Um, it's not. It's going to get worse, like it or not. It's going to get worse, as it's already worse. We shit, man. I mean, excuse my language, but we already worse. We already at a worse stage. But at this at this point, organize. Oh, organize, man. And uh, join a political organization. You got AAPRP, all all uh, all Africans, um, all African People Revolutionary Party. You got PRSP, Pan African Revolutionary Socialist Party. So you got you got those two, you know, organizations. You got you know, AAPRP, GC, AAPRP International, whatever, man. Those two organizations that, we, and we got you got more. You know, we got uh, you got uh, organizations on the continent. Um, uh, we we have you know we have uh, PACA up in DC. We have um, we have Aces M. You know we have um, uh, Michael Cabral, an organization that was uh, funded on on his uh, philosophy. We have CPOC, the Cincinnati Pan African Coalition, up in Cincinnati. Um, you know we have organizations, political revolutionary African organizations, um, that we need to join and 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 keep this movement going. So I conclude with that. Thank you, Brother Maurice. Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to pause for this call, and when we come back, we will continue the discussion of what's going on in your world community. And to my listening audience, if you are listening to this program, feel free to call in and share with us what's going on in your world and the community by dialing 323-679-0841. We're going to pause for this call. We're going to play a some music of three sounds of liberation, and when we come back, we would like for you to participate. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Identity of an African 
Clarendon And if you come from Portland And if you come from Westmoreland You're an African So don't care where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African No mind your nationality I've got the identity of an African Cause if you come from Trinidad And if you come from Nassau And if you come from Cuba You're an African So don't you where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African Know who our freedom fighters were. 
Yeah, well, there's there's quite a bit of information online in terms of Mondo Walenga. Uh, you know, his formal name, previous name was David Rice. So if you can't get Mondo Walenga, you can go into David Rice, a revolutionary, and quite a few information pops up. But uh, he was a committed uh, individual. I mean, this brother was very, very serious in terms of, you know, what he what, what he was trying to achieve. And uh, one of the reasons he got in trouble is something because he was so committed to the very idea in terms of equality in the society. And one of the things that's very, very interesting is that, you know, even though, you know, he was under surveillance by Pro, he was under surveillance by the FBI, they knew that he didn't commit the crime in terms of, it was alleged that uh, he, they, 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 they built a bomb uh, and the bomb exploded and killed a police officer. Even though they didn't know that wasn't true because he was under surveillance, they know precisely when that bomb went off where uh, Mondo and uh, um, Edward Pondexter were at that point, at that time. So the question of their innocence is, 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 is beyond question. So it's not a question in terms of their innocence. Everybody knows that they're innocent. The question is that people should understand the kind of complicity, the kind of duplicity that exists with respect to law enforcement. So often we like to believe that society is just and fair and honest. But the history is very, very clear in terms of uh, what America really stands for. So for those who really believe that America is just, fair, and honest, then they need to really go back and view the history. So Mondo Walenga was one of the latest in terms of uh, revolutionaries to be uh, to be um, <clears throat> um, convicted uh, on faulty uh, information, simply uh, information that was concocted by the state for the sole purpose of ensuring that these these revolutionaries end up in prison. And so clearly, people should understand that you know uh, the great thing about Mondo is, in addition to in terms of in terms of his commitment, in terms of the struggle. Is that he wasn't a very big guy, and uh, this, despite that, you know, he had a, a heart the size of a lion. So clearly, you know, we, we owe a great deal of res- a great deal of homage, a great deal of respect uh, to, to to Brother Mondo in terms of his commitment. And it's important that our children understand precisely who our revolutionary leaders, uh, uh, historical figures are. Uh, we can we can ill afford to have a situation where our people walking around, particularly our young people, who don't know a damn thing about our revolutionary heroes, don't know anything about them. Uh, and that's a shame, and that's that's attributed directly to the community. That is our fault. That is the elders. It is our fault that our children don't understand who the historical revolutionary figures are in this society. Because if you don't provide those figures to the youth, then who do you expect them to emulate? They're going to emulate what they see. And who is the media going to emulate? The most ridiculous, the most, um, uh, the most, uh, the most, um, uh, the most um, unimaginable characters uh, around are the ones that they're going to elevate. Those are the people that the media is going to elevate, and as a consequence, our kids are going to look at those, those buffoons and attempt to elevate them. We can ill afford that, particularly in the time when we talk about this economy deconstructs. We got to understand that the situation is very, very perilous. It's very, very serious. And for those who don't understand the seriousness in terms of you know what's going on, then look again in terms of this whole called um, stimulus package, this $2 trillion that they're talking about. They're not talking about a one-time deal in terms of the stimulus package. They're talking about con- stimulus package continuously, which gives you some idea in terms of how precarious the system is. And if you don't understand in terms of when I say precarious, what that means to your life, then you need to go back and study the history in terms of, you know, uh, you know, um, 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 you know these, these, these governments, uh, these imperialist governments that fall um, in terms of their treatment of the people prior to them falling. So U.S. is in a position where it's in a position where it's falling. And if we understand that those things of the past that states did in terms of trying to maintain some kind of hegemony, ultimately we know that that fails. The U.S. would be no different. 
The only difference is that the U.S. has access to a lot of technology, so therefore it can kill off a lot of more people much more efficiently than, 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 than imperialist powers of the past. So clearly we got our work cut off for us, and a brother like Mondo Walenga, if worth talking about, uh, this brother epitomizes what struggle is all about, and so that's why it's important that people go online and check out this brother, his history in terms of what he was all about. And a lot of times we get our strength by knowing our history and looking at examples before us. So we want to thank we the only one who have been put in these positions. Why well, very important, particularly for us to know about our yeah, true freedom fighters. Now, Brother Anthony, uh, panelists, if any one of y'all want to respond to some of the things the other panelists have stated, feel free to do so. Um, and Brother Anthony, you talk about this question of. Um, there was a protest, recent protest, or ongoing protest, from my understanding of the Canadian um, brothers and sisters is calling for U.S. military to leave that country, Ghana. Now, just to mm-hmm. even hear the story, one would wonder about this whole question of a country independence. Why would an independent country have a foreign troop station inside that country? And what can we draw from that? What's the significance? What's the lessons can we learn in terms of this whole idea of having a foreign military country inside an independent, sovereign country? What can we draw from that? Because many people claim that this is a good example of neocolonialism, which is the biggest um, obstacle to African people moving forward. Your response, Brother Anthony? Certainly. Well, uh, a lot of history is in the order. Uh, Ghana, in 1957, became the first uh, African country to achieve genuine independence from uh, from uh, world imperialism, because uh, under the leadership of uh, uh, Sajifo Kwame Nkrumah and the Convention's People's Party, Ghana attempted to build an independent socialist state. And they were committed to the unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Uh, The Convention People's Party and Kwame Nkrumah's government was overthrown in a coup d'etat in 1966 by forces within Ghana that were enemies of genuine independence. And uh, Ghana's been under neo-colonialist domination ever since. And that means that even though eternally it had the outward trappings of independence, in actuality its economy and therefore its politics were subjected to foreign control by various imperialist forces, such as Britain and the U.S., and that's how it came to be that uh, that this neo-colonial government signed an agreement with U.S. allowing for the uh, uh, for the presence of, of a foreign military base inside Ghana. Of course, this is against the interests of the masses of people inside Ghana, and that's why there is an ongoing struggle among the masses of Ghanaian people to. Uh, to uh, uh, to get rid of that military presence, but that can only be achieved under the unification and liberation of Africa 
under scientific socialism in a word panafricanism because as as africa is presently constituted no ostensibly independent state is strong enough or organized enough to fight against uh uh world imperialism and that is what uh that that the, the people in africa are dealing with right now Well, this I look to your response as well. Why do they have a U.S. presence, military presence, in, a, in any African countries? I mean, how do we allow this to happen? Particularly, Brother Anthony, when one look at the history and the lessons of their forefather, uh, Osaka for Kwame Nkrumah, that was one of the things he said definitely not to allow no foreign troops on or in any of these countries. Well, well, what what the imperialists are taking advantage of uh, is the impoverished state that uh, a lot of Africans at home find themselves in. They uh, uh, let's see, because uh, 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 African countries have failed to unite to this point and organize and collectivize their politics and their economy. A lot of uh, uh, the masses of African people face uh, a tremendous amount of impoverishment, suffering, starvation. And uh, people have the perception that that's because Africans can't do for self. That is not true. I mean, uh, a careful study of African history, we were were the first scientists, first farmers, and first industrialists in the world. What is what what is happening is the fact that because uh, a lot of our labor and resources are expended towards serving the interests of imperialism, we cannot, uh, you know, we we cannot utilize the best farmland that we have to grow food for our people. A lot of our best farmland is used to grow cash crops like cocoa, coffee. And uh, a lot of our labor is suspended toward digging up resources like uranium, uh, iron, tin, gold, etc., to serve the interests of capitalism. And because of that, we're not able to direct our energies to effectively providing the resources needed to feed, shelter, and clothe our own people. And we end up being uh, uh, importing a lot of goods from uh, 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 from from these capitalist countries that oppress us. So the only solution to that is the permanent organization of the masses of our people, and for us, you know, finding ways to come together, uh, you know, to unite to to, to defeat imperialism and achieve Pan-Africanism. And as we look at this so-called pandemic, deal with desires, you also raised the issue, and I'd like to talk to us a little bit about it because I think it's very important in the overall scheme for the conditions of African people. We begin to become conscientized of our realities globally and how we can work better together as one functioning unit. And that's the issue of U.S. has upped the ante and the tactics of trying to overthrow the government of Venezuela. And one of the things they have done, from my understanding, you can articulate it, 
Brother Anthony, they used a blockade against Venezuela where they refused to let medical supplies to come in and anything to go out that would help that country and other countries such as Cuba, Iran, etc., to have medical um, supplies to help fight this um, pandemic, dealing with the virus. Can you talk to the listening audience in terms of the importance of why we must take a close look at this particular confrontation between the U.S. government and Venezuela and what it may mean to the citizens here and African people in particular? Okay. Uh, we must take a, 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 a look at that closely um, uh, because, um, well, you know, it's interesting that um, – that one of our, uh, you know, uh, freedom fighters, Martin Luther King Jr., he had, uh, he taught us that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And uh, and I think uh, the coronavirus uh, crisis has brought that in, clearly into view, because uh, uh, you have a lot of Africans and. Um, you know, and uh, indigenous people to the Western Hemisphere living in Venezuela. As a matter of fact, they make up a majority of the people in Venezuela, and uh, and 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 they're suffering behind this blockade. And it's because of this blockade that they cannot get uh, uh, assistance from their brothers and sisters in Cuba to deal with the coronavirus. And also from uh, uh, from uh, allies around the world that have got a handle on how at least how to diagnose the coronavirus, if not treat it. And also uh, one of the uh, you know I mean what uh, you know what affects one affects all. And one thing that people have to understand about coronavirus, it does not respect ethnicity. Nor borders, nor political borders. So, uh, and the thing about it, though, uh, you know, this uh, blockade against Venezuela and uh, and countries like Iran, uh, uh, Zimbabwe, etc., takes away from resources that could be allocated to dealing with this major health crisis. That confronts the people that live on uh, that, that 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 live in th- in this uh, land, and uh, the response uh, to the, to the healthcare needs of the masses of the people is far from adequate at this time. You know, brother Haki, one of the things in looking at the behavior and history of this particularly country is that it's very consistent in terms of its, it, it, the political position that it takes when it comes to oppressing the masses of African people in general and humanity in particular. For example, what can you make of the reality that as of right now, the U.S. has a blockade against one-third of the world population? Yeah, well... You know, what can you make of that? Well, besides yeah. what you what you alluded to, Brother Africa, that is that the U.S. does pretty much what it wants when it wants in terms of broadly defined self-interest 
And uh, there's only one self-interest, that's the interest of the United States. And keep in mind, let's not be deceived. When we talk about U.S. self-interest, that also includes Europe. Europe is also secondary in terms of U.S. interest. So we're talking about a global phenomenon, a global um, philosophy that, that, that permeates this entire uh, political establishment here in America. So clearly, you know, it's not such a threat to, to, to Venezuela per se, but a threat throughout the world. And, and, and you're absolutely correct. That is a problem. I think, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things that we had to come to realization and understand is that, you know, um, to some extent that we have to talk about a value system that exists. To the extent that America has power, it, it, it sort of entails the reality that a lot of people actually agree, uh, if not um, d- directly, at least tacitly, they agree in terms of a lot of the policies that the U.S. Uh, implement. Otherwise, you would think there'd be greater resistance in terms of these kind of policies. And particularly when you talk about African states in terms of willingness to allow the U.S. to have military right in their countries, knowing they're not there to do anything that's going to benefit their countries, but willing to, but, they, but despite that, do it anyway. You know, speaks to a kind of value system which, which is predisposed uh, toward uh, you know uh, neural self-interest as as relates to African leaders. And so, therefore, this kind of selfishness, this kind of individualism, uh, this kind of notion that, you know, it's all about me, 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 plays directly into U.S. foreign policy because they don't see a conflict in terms of having these, these U.S. military troops in your country. They see it as, a, as an extension of their power, and so, therefore, they're willing to go along and play that game. So the problem is that, you know, it's a, it's a value system, so how do, we, how do we combat that value system? That is a much larger question because it's not that African leaders don't understand what the issues are. African people are very, very African. I'm gonna tell you something. The great thing I love about traveling to Africa, you know, is that in talking to the elders, they're so they're so intuitive, they're so intelligent, they're so they you know in terms of their they're so philosophical. I mean, they understand in terms of the world. I just love talking to the elders in Africa. When I get up, the first ones I talk to always is the elders. I don't even talk to younger people a lot of times. I talk to the elders in terms of their perception, in terms of what's going on, because they can give you a, 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 a unbiased perception. Well, not necessarily unbiased, but certainly they can give you a perception based upon history, in terms of you know being on this planet for long periods of time, and making sense in terms of the kind of things that go on. So I love talking to the elders in Africa because they are very, very astute in terms of what's going on, and they're very, very philosophical. And so, therefore, so for us to think that somehow that African leaders are all naive or somehow don't understand the implications of the actions that they take, that's far from the truth. They know precisely what they're doing. They know precisely what they're doing. But, there's, but, there, but their narrow self-interest ex, uh, exceeds any other concerns. So the suffering of their people, the, uh, the destabilization of the society, uh, the lack of, of, of infrastructure in the countries doesn't bother them. It doesn't bother them. As long as they, as long as they get compensated and get some status from the West, then they're perfectly comfortable to be complacent or complicit in terms of these kind of policies, which fundamentally, systematically underdeveloped Africa states. So clearly, you know, this the question, the much larger question is, what do we do in terms of uh, destroying this this bias system? That's, is this, and we can, you know, we don't have to stop, talk about simply internationally. We can talk about here in America. Why is it that African people, given the situation that exists in their society, knowing the kind of pressure that African people face, why, what is the inability of our people to organize? It's not that we don't understand the importance of organization. It's a value system. People, a lot of people who call themselves conscious, a lot of people who call themselves political, a lot of people call themselves revolutionary, 
when you get right down to it in terms of discussion, it's very, very clear that a lot of these people idolize America. They think American ideas are the greatest ideas in the world. And so when you get trying to get them to understand, you know, in terms of, you know, discourse, why such a view may be counterproductive in terms of, you know, revolutionary aspirations, they don't see it. See, they, see, on one level, they can say I'm revolutionary. They can tell themselves that on a conscious level. But on an unconscious level, everything they do is geared toward the furtherment or the enhancement you know, of the American political system. So it's a problem. It's a value system. And how do we come at that? That's a very difficult thing to do. It's like saying to an African person, you know what, why you got a color complex? Why is it that you think that someone who's light-skinned is more intelligent than someone who's dark-skinned? Or why do you think someone who's light-skinned is more beautiful than someone who's dark-skinned? Why do you think like that? It's not like they're going to sit there and tell you, well, you know what, the reason I think like that is because blah, blah, blah. It doesn't work that way. They're not going to tell you that. You observe their behavior, and you know, you know based upon their behavior what they're thinking, but they're not going to come out and say, I, I got a colonial mentality, this is the way I think. It doesn't work that way. So this value system is how do we get this value system in terms of uh, people understanding that, you know, the reason why African people can overturn the situation, can't change the situation fundamentally is because a value system gets in the way. And, of course, a lot of times religion does play a part in terms of obscuring that value system, uh, which, which makes it almost impossible in terms of any type of critique and understanding why is it there are people in such a predicament. So, we got, so this value system is a big, big problem. And the question is, what can we do in terms of, in terms of combating that? That's a much more difficult question, Brother Africa. We, we keep working, we keep working, we keep working. You know, we, we keep advocating importance in terms of institutions. We've been advocating institutions since we've been in this, since we've been, our ancestors have been enslaved in a society, and we continue to advocate institutions. But until the people fundamentally understand it and understand the values associated with institutions, they won't move the creedum. So that's a much broader question. So I'll close with that. You know, Brother Could Moore, I add brother, something? Um, yes, you may. Go ahead, Brother Moore. Sure. Well, Brother Anthony, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I want to add that I think a key part, a part of what Brother Haki was stating points to our pro- the problem of our pressure being primarily ideological. In other words, it's our, you know, you know, it's ideas that are backward. And, you know, Pan-Africanists such as Nkrumah, uh, Secretary and others tried to correct that. They dedicated their lives to trying to do that. And what we need is a revolutionary ideology, in addition to permanent organization, because we have to change the way we think. And because of the enemy's control of uh, the educational system and the mass media, we 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 have a lot of our people that are educated have inculcated the ideas of the enemy, so a lot of us end up thinking like the enemy instead of looking out for our own interests. We work against that. So what's needed in addition to permanent organization is a revolutionary ideology. Yeah, thank you, Maurice and um, Brother Moses. Let's go ahead. Mike is yours. I didn't want to uh, over, uh, you know, uh, over, you know, from God, over God, um, uh, uh, over speak over um, Brother Moses if he had something to say. But uh, basically, what I was going to add to um, Brother Hackie and Brother Anthony's point is, I mean, they can 
couldn't say it no better. Like, you know, regardless, I'm not going to say this years ago in the 60s, man. Like, regardless of your religion, keep it at home in the closet. Our main application be our freedom. And, 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 and I say this, like, yeah, the Africans, uh, at the Massachusetts, you know the oppression. You know, a lot of Africans, um, you know, they know the they know the problem, they know the issue, they know the uh, they know the politics. Don't give a give a give a fuck in my lane, but they don't. They don't give a uh, fuck about us. They don't give a they don't care about Africans. They don't care about poor people. They don't care about workers and so forth and so forth. So we we have that understanding as a people. But yeah, the value system is important. But they also you, you, I, I would urge people to, to master get in an organization that would, would let's let, let just focus on it like you said the conscious sector right you have a lot of socialists we have a lot of cultural uh cultural socialists a lot of africans celebrating traditional african wear uh african dance african drumming we have a lot of that in our communities right if, if they would become political more political and, and, and just them alone the conscious community and the any socialists right quote-unquote conscious and they alone would join a a a, uh, a revolutionary not not just a revolutionary organization but an organization uh, just join an organization who focuses on the unification of Africa and all African uh, socialist government in Africa. You know that's the most that's that Kwame Nkrumah stated this man. This is this must be our primary objective uh, for all Black revolutionaries throughout the world. You know and you know and once this objective is achieved, all Africans around the world. Have freedom. I mean, it's, 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 it's like what's so difficult for us to understand and see that, you know, not not to be idealist in the in the scientific sense, but just be materialist for a minute. Right? Like, uh, and I ain't talking about materialist as in I, I care about clothes, cars, and diamond rings. I'm not saying that. I'm being real, being realistic. Feel. Um, people, one worse the movie theater when Black Panther came out because they they had that vision of. So I had to I had developed African society of, of this fictional society of Wakanda, right? Um, and Kroomer was building that. And, and, and Kroomer, not only in Kroomer, like we spoke about Sekwe uh, Ture, he was building that. Thomas Sankara was building that, Bikina Faso. And it's kind of Patrice Lumumba in Congo, uh, Maurice Bishop in Grenada, you know, uh, whether it's the Black Panther Party organization in Oak, you know, we, 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 in some state of fashion, we were trying to build uh, the, the society, but when you have entities like the uh, United Nations, um, you know, coming in and participating in assassination, CIA, Foreign Tail Pro, you know, China Intelligence Program, well, AFRICOM, the African AFRICOM command base. It's, it, you got to understand, man. It's, it's, not, it's, it's like you you see this going on. So what what you going to do as a, as an individual first? You going to keep fighting? And man, understand the sense of organization. These understand. The sense of organization, man. Uh, gazelles um, fighting lions, and, and, and on the continent, understand the sense of organization. Why can't we understand the sense of organization, man? You got to put these, these egos down. Everybody, like Brother Hatch, he stated, I'm, "I'm for me, 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 me." The individualist concept. That's why I, we highly urge um, everybody, uh, Africans, to get in a order or a political revolution, a political organization. They will help us. Develop. I didn't get to, to this understanding that overnight. Uh, when I was in my earlier years, I was a, a person, um, you know, I, I, I was still a humanist. For, uh, uh, I believe in humanity, but I had that. Uh, I'm gonna build my brand, or I'm, I'm just for myself. I, ain't, I don't, you know, 
I had that I had I had that sense in my early teenage years, but I came I was I was I had a, a fighting spirit in me as uh, as from a Malcolm, as from a Kwame Ray. You know, Huey Newton. Looking at them people that looking at those uh freedom fighters. And develop a freedom fighter spirit, man. That's what we need. If if, if you have a freedom fighting fighting spirit, it's not it's not it's not a it's not a question, man. You have to join an organization. Um, a political organization, a political study. And that, you know, you gotta have land. Talking about people talking about um getting land, owning land. Yeah, you can own land for the for the sense of yeah, uh, uh I have family that own land in the country but it ain't <laughs> it ain't really getting us uh the freedom or justice that we need. The land we need uh to be in control of control of and Af- is is Africa. I believe it, it definitely can happen. Once we did, um, take up that sense of organization, and uh, once you understand the problem, the issue, now you got to question yourself. You got to, you know, if you if you take the if you take the, the Patty Bourgeoisie role, right, or you take these role our quote unquote African leaders have taken, how far you you going to get out of that? You're not going to get that far. You know, look look at once once you um you're not going to get that you're not going to get that far. That wealth is not even going to go down to to, to, to your family. Where are you going to get out? Of? I mean, it's, it's it's crazy, man. It's, it's the whole you just chasing your tail until we understand the, the the reality that we must organize. And it's not just it's not it's not it's not um it's not saying it's not we're not talking. And I'm not knocking uh, a religious any religious belief about the rapture, about the mothership coming. But um but until we get that, if you will, that type of freedom, the real the real thing that on earth that we can get is organization. And getting us close to our liberation, and and, and and putting a socialist system in place, a socialist system, basically um, having uh, owning the factories, owning not not a certain class on owning owning the factories, the people owning the factories. We own the factories. We control our destiny. You understand what I'm saying? So once we get that understanding, it'd be good night for the capitalists. For all I can say, all I can truly believe, and I conclude with that. You panelists, let me bring in our brother Moses, and the rest can follow. Brother Moses, Moses and the panelists, 52 years ago, um, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Tennessee on April the 4th, 1968. We have a lot of our sisters running around that they are followers and belief of King and his legacy. Well, if Brother King was living today, how would you think he would address um, these realities that are going on right now as it relates to African people in the outside of the U.S. Brother Moses and then other panelists can follow in. What do you think Brother King would uh, be doing and saying? I think definitely Dr. King was into organization. Let's get that straight. No no question about it. He, he, he said the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he had other organizations that he, he was part of and influenced. Uh, and uh, so, you know, he he the Poor People's March, the the uh, the going to Memphis, all the things that he did, you know, was part of his organized approach to solving this problem of of, of inequality within the U.S. of A. And uh, he was branching and growing and expanding. Uh, his reach, uh, and, uh, you know, he was assassinated, uh, before he was, he was able to really truly blossom totally, uh, into a full communist 
or socialist, uh, someone who was willing to go the scientific socialist route. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know if he ever grasped class struggle on that level in terms of actually being able to see the need to take control of the economy. Uh, I don't, I don't think he had developed to that point yet. Uh, in terms of scientific socialism, but definitely in terms of regulations and and committees and and subcommittees and different groups, organizations to control and and uh, direct development of the of the economy uh, in terms of the interests of poor and working class people. He was all for that, and uh, he was coming around against war and the war economy. And uh, Dr. King, you know, was was a a, a great leader. Uh, but the masters and the masters alone make history, and so he was able to sum up the aspirations of the masses of people that represented. And so that's why he was in a leadership position because he saw a need and he fulfilled it. And that's what leadership is all about. Uh, uh, there has to be a internal drive within oneself, a personal desire for for uh, altruism, compassion, and uh, and uh, empathy for the masses and the suffering of, of the masses of people, and to identify with it, and to want to alleviate it. And not everybody everybody has that. That's not. That's not uh, necessarily common, although the masses of people do spontaneously gravitate towards socialism. The, the masses of the people have that spontaneous uh, instinct. But, you know, we need to bring consciousness to the movement, and that's what, you know, Dr. King was working on. Uh, that's what Malcolm X was working on, and that's what Kwame Ture and you know, it's to bring consciousness to the movement. The people let people see the real conditions they're in and what they can do to change the situation. And uh, it takes organization to do that uh, because it, it takes a mass movement to do that. And uh, you know, we got to continue that that struggle. Uh, 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 I'll leave it right there. Thank you, Brother Anthony, Brother Haki. How y'all think Dr. King would respond to the present-day conditions and contradictions that we are dealing with today? I think he would be. Uh, I think he would be in the in in the forefront of protesting the present conditions that exist. Uh, to the uh, you know to the extent that he could, you know, given the uh, you know the so, uh, social distancing, you know. Uh, you know constraints. You know that 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 affect our ability to mobilize and, and, and organize right now. But I think he would be against. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know the the current policies of the U.S. government, and he was against them at the time he was assassinated. That's why he was assassinated, because he took a principled stand against imperialism. And uh, and uh, and its relentless attack upon the upon the Vietnamese people. And uh, he had learned from working in the trenches with the youth, 
spearheaded by SNCC, you know, during uh, during the sixties. He worked among the people, which I think why his why his level of practice was a lot higher than uh, than than some uh, than some of uh, his contemporaries at that time. And uh, he had uh, he had the ability to galvanize people into uh, a movement that would shut down the U.S. government, which I think is a, a major reason why he was assassinated. But uh, he would be against uh, current U.S. policy if he, if he was living uh, now. Yeah, I, I think that if he was around today, uh, in, in reference to something Brother Moses said, I think he would engage in a high level of struggle. And I say this for this reason. There was a quote that he made that was very, very interesting, uh, which speaks values in terms of, you know, where he was heading. Anyway, this is a quote, okay? Rarely do we find men who willingly engage in hard, solid thinking. There is an almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions. Nothing pains some people more than having to think, end the quote. There's another quote that he made that was very, very telling in terms of where he was headed. And this quote is this. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. So in other words, I think Martin Luther King, remember he had a degree in sociology. So he had a fundamental, a fundamental understanding of the framework of society. And so, so forth. He definitely understood that certain strategies, certain tactics, simply wouldn't work, given the the objective conditions our people were confronted with. And so, therefore, it meant that we have a higher level of thinking in terms of moving our people forward. So, I think he was he was aware of that. I think he was on his way to making that transition. I think one of the things that Kwame talks about, he talked about the fact that uh, Martin Luther King was a great orator, and, and of course he was. But the mere fact, in terms of being a great Organizer, uh, I think uh, uh, Martin Luther King was well in his way in terms of becoming a great organizer because I think his, these quotes speak volumes in terms of his willingness to understand that you know once you acquire a certain amount of information and a certain amount of knowledge, there's no turning back. And so this is the key to get people to acquire that information because once they cross that threshold, they don't go back. The problem is getting them there. Uh, there's a certain amount of um, resistance to ideas, and so people don't often get it. You have to keep saying it over and over and over again. Eventually, at some point, it penetrates, and once they get it, they don't go back. So I think Martin Luther King was at the point in which he got it. He understood that a lot of the strategies and tactics that he was engaged in were good in terms of mobilizing people, but it wasn't wasn't exactly uh, the best the best the best pursuit in terms of trying to bring about the desired effects in terms of desired impact in terms of empowerment of people. So I think he was on his way to understanding that certainly the strategies and tactics have to change in terms of you know getting our people to where we need to be. And I think if he was here today. I think he'd be a forceful advocate in terms of uh, organizing, in terms of questions around, you know, what's happening in terms of uh, war, in terms of uh, coronavirus, in terms of uh, the oppression of, of, of working class and of African people. I think he'd be uh, very much, uh, much more, much more um, um, adamant in terms of his presentation of uh, of, of these issues, and less. Um, I want to say, I want to say less confrontational. But I think he certainly he would be uh, he would be much more forthright in terms of his assessment in terms of what's going on, as opposed to the situation where he you know is trying to state state things in, in a way which is palatable 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 uh, to, uh, to 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 a lot of people in positions of power. So I think that he would definitely be a much more forceful advocate if he were here today. 
And Brother Maurice, we take out, before we take our station break, your thoughts on Dr. King and how would he respond yes. if you live today? We're coming up on a 63-year anniversary on April 7th. Uh, April 7th, 1957, 63 years ago, Dr. King made a speech um, at, at, at his church about the, um, the, the independence of China. He made the speech, the title of the speech, of a new nation. Powerful title for this powerful speech. And the speech speaks about he was so motivated, he was so inspired by Kwame Nkrumah's um, independence speech. He was present um, when Kwame Nkrumah came out of jail um, to receive independence from Ghana and to become the first. And I'm just going to be politically correct. Um, uh, he, he was the first African president of any country, right, in, in the world, in the in, in a sense. If, if, if I'm wrong, please correct me. Um, you know, he, Dr. King was present at this speech. This is 1957. And so if, if you go back and take a look at this speech, and you can even listen to it, the raw audio from his speech of him speaking about his experience and what he felt when he was in Ghana, spoke about uh, he, he spoke about how he can um, uh, uh, take from from, uh, from 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 the movement in Ghana and bring it into America with uh, them getting they, you know knocking off and taking off the chains of colonialism, um, and, and you know he he used metaphors about speaking about the exodus uh, in Egypt. But it was it was a very powerful powerful speech, and when you listen to that speech, and when you read if you read or listen to that speech, you will understand that King had the understanding of who his enemy was. Not not you you know, not not talking about in the race sense, but he knew I, I believe this is this is me speaking. After reading this and listening to his speech, I believe that Dr. King knew all along who who the enemy enemy was. I think he was take, taking certain certain and, and Kuma did did this did, with positive with positive um with the positive energy or positive Action. movement campaign. Yeah, with the positive movement campaign, but to be not to be long with it because I know we gotta take a break. But just go back. I urge this. Just go back to that speech. Answer your question, brother. After if, if we go back and look at that speech, I think we would know where what, what, what King was definitely heading to. If he was alive right now, you know, good damn well. That's why they had a. That's why they did what they did. And what we won't be. We probably wouldn't be in this. Just think about that. We probably want to be. I don't. You know, in this situation, um, if, if you know. If he if he has survived and lived, but this is what we dealing dealing with, and um, you know, I, I just I want to urge people please go listen to that speech, the birth of a new nation. All right, panelists, let's pause for this call. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, and then we will talk a little bit about part two, our theme. We'll take a look at the Corona pandemic in the U.S. and the world. We basically have been touching upon some some aspect of this, but we hopefully go a little further in depth. So right now, you're listening to Africa on the Move. We're going to pause for this cause, and when we come back, we'd like to have you, the audience, come and join us by dial 323-679-0841. You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is an organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state... And people, well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. 
you know how we think. Organize the hood under our chain banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like UEP. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I want to be free to live. Able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready. We just spreading the seed. Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rather get shot in they back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my rap. It's documented, I meant it. Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it. It's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding in one, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's the low for push-ups now, many headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. Yeah, I've been African people really couldn't catch 
uh, the coronavirus. And uh, last week they did a real interesting um, a statistical report based on race out of the state of Michigan in terms of the racial breakdown of how many people caught it, how many people di- um, died from this virus. And it seemed like this coronavirus has a love for African people. The report says that in Michigan they have maybe a population of 14% of Africans in the state of Michigan will reflect population in the U.S. as a whole, but yet 40% of all the people who have died from the particular virus are Africans. Now, I know in the conscious community, there's a great um, concern about, they're not really telling us the real truth in terms of the real impact of this particular virus, not only in the African community inside the U.S., but as well as the African communities outside the U.S., um, what do y'all make of this narrative, and how can we make sure that our people are not in a daze in terms of continuing to accept certain narratives that really doesn't even make have don't make common sense, don't make no sense at all? Because we are African, we can't catch the virus. How do we respond to those type of narratives, families? Uh. I would say, uh, first of all, that um, that in a case in any pandemic or any Ill, we're dealing with any illness, education becomes very important, and uh, a lot of uh, a, a lot of Africans worldwide are very poor, and one of the consequences consequences of poverty. Is lack to access uh, to uh, to adequate information and education. So, if anything, I think African Africans would be the most vulnerable one among the most vulnerable uh, to, uh, uh, to to uh, you know to catching this illness because of lack of knowledge more than anything else. In addition to lack of knowledge, uh, inadequate health care unequal access to it uh, for those Africans in the diaspora that are in wealthier countries. And, um, you know, and just, uh, you, you, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, uh, you know, habits or diets that compromise the immune system, which, uh, would, which would, would render Africans more susceptible to the uh, to the effects of this virus, so I think those factors would uh, you know would dispel the, uh, the 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 myth that Africans are less susceptible. <clears throat> if anything, they were uh, you know were, were probably more susceptible because of the conditions that the masses of Africans throughout uh, Africa and the diaspora find themselves. Brother Anthony and Teresa panelists, in terms of your response, I uh, concur with you, but there's still one problem. What, what, what that general response is that it's not just the so-called poor class Africans that's falling for this narrative that African people can't catch it because we're Africans. For some reason, another we have special bodies and we can't be effective. You even have Africans who have a high level of quote-unquote education. That's falling for the narrative. Such as for tonight, I was listening to the major news, 
And they are saying that some tiger in the zoo in New York caught the virus from one of the trainers, so now it can be submitted for animal to humans, human to animal. Whereas before, they could not be. So what we going to do about all this mis- misinformation and stuff, Brother Haki? How do we deal with this? Yeah, you know, one of the things you know, I think you hit upon it, Brother Africa, and that is the legitimacy, you know, of the uh, of, of the media. When the media speak, people tend to listen. And one of the things we talked about last week, we talked about the ability of those positions of power to 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 release information which is erroneous, which is false, for the sole purpose of, of misdirecting, misdirecting a community. So this notion that African people can't catch the symptoms of the African people is, 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 is very disingenuous. It's so absurd, I mean, it's beyond belief. But the problem is that it has such legitimacy, so when the media says that people tend to believe it's true. And this is a fundamental problem we have. See, without the organization to combat a lot of this insanity, then it's very difficult in terms of getting a message out to our people in terms of, listen, don't listen to that. That's nonsense. It becomes extremely difficult. I, I think that... Um, so to, to some extent, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things that I find problematic, reports have been leaked talking about the fact that people with pre-existing conditions, you know, diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, and so forth and so on, are more susceptible to the coronavirus. And it's interesting because all the diseases that they list are, are, are prevalent among African people. And so I'm sitting here reading these, reading these, reading these articles. I'm like, this is very, very interesting that they happen to pick out these particular ailments uh, in terms of the impact, the impact humanity. These ailments disproportionately impact African people, particularly when it's talking about the southern region in terms of these, the 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 next, the believe next epicenter of this of this coronavirus is going to be the South, the Deep South. And I find it very interesting that they would say that. So I suspect that this information is somewhat disingenuous. I think it has a lot to do with concealing precisely what's really going on in terms of the the, the mode of transmission, in terms of what's really going on in terms of respect to coronavirus. So I think that we have to be very, very careful in terms of, you know, legitimizing media and understanding that everything we hear, everything we read, everything we see on television isn't necessarily true. As a matter of fact, most of it is not true. But nonetheless, it still has a powerful hold over lots of our people who still believe that they hear it or see it or read it, uh, it actually exists. So it's one of those things with our organization is very difficult to, con- to, 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 uh, to confront, Brother Africa. So... I don't know if there's any easy solution to that, but uh, clearly this notion that based upon your skin color, you can't catch HIV is, is absurd. Um, I mean, the real, they talk about the low incidence of, of, of coronavirus uh, infections in Africa and trying to understand why that is so. Well, number one, we don't know if, in fact, they're really reporting the numbers in terms of the coronavirus impact on the population in Africa. Uh, we really don't really know, and without the, really knowing, you know, the numbers, then it's very difficult to to uh, assess how true those those statements are when they say the incidence of coronavirus is very low in Africa. So clearly, you know, we understand that uh, this is this is a political world, and now people have to begin to understand that whether you want to believe it or not, you have to become political. You have to start thinking. I don't give a damn if you're in the church. You have to start thinking because you don't have a choice. You have to. You have to become political. Stop wrong with being spiritual and political. You can do both. It's not. That's not. That's not a. That's not, a, that's, that's, that's not a, a inherent conflict between the two. You can be religious and political. You can do both. Religion is political if you want to get right down to it. But we have to begin to understand that all we hear, see, and read isn't necessarily truth. And I think organization is the only way we can we can get the word out that a lot of the stuff that does that, that exists is geared toward deceiving us. So 
I think organization is the key. In response, Brother Moses or Maurice to the issue of African Yes, I think organization is key. Um, I think, you know, through a continuous struggle uh, and, and enlightening people, uh, putting out good information, we win over the hearts and minds of the people. Uh, and that's what it takes to organize a body of people uh, to to uh, to really mobilize people and, and and get them where they can trust the leadership because the leadership has always looked out for their interests and, and so uh, um, and uh, you know it's a struggle. Uh, 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 I'll, I'll I'll leave right. Uh, leave off there. Thank you. Yeah, yeah um, and I will piggyback off Brother Moses. Um, yeah, definitely the people do have to have to. Uh, like I said, we have to get this mass information to the people because to to, to um, counteract what's going on with the other sources. But just look at it. They talk about uh, old, only saying citizens can get it. Only older people can get it. Only people with a weak immune system can get it. Uh, black people can't get it. African people can't get it. Well, right now, from my sources that I have, um, uh, according to the African Business Magazine, you have 8,523 cases right now in the African continent. Um, if, if this, this is what uh, the African Business, Business Magazine, New African Magazine, produced. Um, and, and, and as of right now, and also you had a 25-year-old, 25-year-old, he, he was at the um, Western, Michigan, Western Michigan University, he died of COVID-19. And he was a healthy. He was he was an athlete. <laughs> no, he was an athlete, and he didn't have any under, underland issues. And you, you know, you can you like like we do, like like myself and my fellow panelists do. We research this information. We follow current events. Um, I urge the listening audience to do the same thing. You can you can find this. Uh, you can find this these instances. You have a four year old child who was in ICU in Milwaukee. Black child, black girl. She didn't have any. The mother said she didn't have any underland issues. And thank God she passed. But they watching her health, they can not help. And enough of me, you know, it's a, it's, it's a lot of uh, African brothers and sisters, young and old, uh, and children and teenagers who are dying and surviving it. Uh, in New York, you had the head of sister named Tiffany Pickney. Uh, this is the Associated Press uh, produced this story. She survived. She's a, she's a 30, 30, 39 year old sister. She survived. She she had, they, they right now in New York at the medical facility in, in uh, what is uh what is his name of this hospital man uh Sinai uh Sinai I can't even get the name but it's this is Associated uh, Press if you go to your Google search engine you can type in Tiffany Pickney and uh coronavirus and it'll come up they are going to use her blood to try to uh, to try to use as as a as a um how can I say this as a solution or as a regiment to combat the other viruses with another people. Uh, you, you, I'm not saying you got a situation on her here at Alex, but you do, um, in the sense of using African woman, uh, 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 um, African woman DNA, to, or African woman blood DNA, or body body parts, or whatever you want to, uh, how you want to frame this, using that to con- to to, to com- combat other illnesses or to produce um, produce a wealthine for her at a lax cell. Um, it, it, it could create a lot of things to combat viruses. And, 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 and basically revolutionized the medical industry from Henry Henry Adelette. And they're going to try to use do the same thing with this sister in New York, Tiffany Pickney. 
they're going to use her blood to combat the virus, the COVID-19. So it's pretty, I say this to say, to echo my brothers, my fellow panelists, Brother Moses and, and Brother uh, Anthony and Hackney, it's, it's, it's plenty of rough information out here that Africans are dying from this and, and are getting sick and also recovering from this. And they're going to uh, utilize, <laughs> once again, our DNA, our, our health, um, to 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 combat illnesses, you know, for their for their for every for their survival, honestly. So I conclude with that. Okay, that's interesting point. That's interesting point that brother brother Maurice raised, and that is there's so much inconsistency in terms of this virus. And normally, when you think about these kind of inconsistencies, then then clearly, you know, someone is making a concerted effort to make sure that all this conflicted information gets out. With all this conflict of information, what it means, it makes it almost impossible, very difficult for people to arrive at a at a at a sane and just realization, a, a rationalization in terms of precisely what's really going on. So I think that you know when you think about a baby six months old dying from so-called coronavirus, then all this stuff is about pre-existing conditions, age. My brother, my research is absolutely correct. They all become irrelevant. So clearly, you know, uh, there is there is. There's, there's a political dimension to this virus, and so this is what they want to keep us away from. This accounts for all the conflicting information that we're constantly receiving. Brother after you talk about the fact that, you know, from animal to human, from human to animal, you know, so clearly this information is continuing to, to continue to change. And so, therefore, you know, there's only one reality in terms of the formation of this coronavirus in terms of high, in, in high spreads. The mere fact that we don't have a consistent understanding in terms of this virus, in terms of its evolution, speaks values in terms of the kind of political, political manipulation that's going on so as to keep people, keep people confused. So I just want to throw that out there. And hey, Haki, I go into my call. If you have a call, who like, may have a comment or a question. And when I come back, I'm going to continue to expand on your last point. We'll take our call, 7244. Caller, your last one number is 7244. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Your question or comment, please. Peace and power, family. How is everybody? Hey, brother, how you doing? I'm doing just fine. This is Brother Equani from Colin from uh, South Carolina. But, uh, okay, you, you know, great show, great, great topic. And um, I I think, you know, what we're looking at is, you know, modern-day warfare. Um, I'm pretty sure that's, that's what we're up against. Um, even as you're seeing now, food sources starting to become depleted. I don't look at this thing as a mere coincidence, right? I do know that when you look at the simulations that Bill Gates had been running with the coronavirus, even when the coronavirus had been spoken of years ago, uh, the U.S. actually has a patent on the virus. You understand? There's actually a patent on the virus, I want to say, from uh, like 2008, maybe somewhere around in that area, Okay. So, you know, it, 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 even when they're talking about uh, Donald Trump had previous knowledge that this thing was going to hit the uh, the U.S. In, in January, right? Um, I, I look at, uh, you know, the eugenics program. I look at the, the, the population control. I look at Bill Gates. You know, it's no wonder that you see Bill Gates right now as somewhat of a poster boy, representative as it relates to speaking about the coronavirus and what they're planning to do. And he has shared or does share the Margaret Singer type of mentality 
basically saying that the world is becoming uh, too full or it's coming, becoming to be uh, too overpopulated. So now they're saying, hey, we want to do something about it. And um, I'm going to look further into, because I'm a one that people will probably look at me as a com- conspiracy theorist, but I am a one that have has been privy to HARP, uh, you know, Gwen, what they're doing with the Gwen technologies, what they're doing with the microwave signaling and the high frequency. Uh, I'm, I'm aware, you know, the fact that they are, you know, when you look up at the sky, sometimes we're seeing chemtrails barium, strontium, aluminum. So they're basically filling this ionosphere with a lot of metallic particles, therefore giving way to to move and and and, and basically manipulate uh certain aspects of nature. And this is when we're looking at the European, when we're looking at his 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 quote unquote evil genius, this is what he has spent his time on and, and for what my African teachers have taught taught me they're doing uh, will be their very undoing. So I think it is a situation where they're wanting to set up where they've already planned for this AI type of environment, this computer generated, this computer operated, ran by machines type of technology. We're in 2020, and if you can recall on all of the movies, this is where you start to see the evolution and the, 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 the new day start to change in the 2020 time. So I do feel this is just only a ploy, a marketing strategy to now start to roll in and them starting to implement some of the things that they've been working on covertly. So I don't feel like this thing is a mistake. I don't feel like, uh, you know, I definitely feel like it is, um, you know, a weapon. It is a it is a bioweapon, um, you know, in my opinion. So uh, definitely everybody guard themselves, and, and when it comes down to black folks, you know, this is a time to start working on your immune system. Don't be afraid, you know, going in on the inside, working with your family, you know, becoming happy, eating the right thing. Don't fill up on snacks because, again, if it's not the coronavirus, it could be some other virus that's looking to actually attack your body, and we have to make sure that our bodies are strong in, in actually defending this, itself. So I, I think this definitely just – Causes us to key on, key in on some things. We got to stop eating at McDonald's. We got to stop depending on uh, Burger King to give us our nutrition. Now it's giving us the, the the options to now plant some food and going back into a substantial form of nutrition. You call us online. I agree with everything you have stated because I was going to go down the line. I think the whole beginning is narrative. Uh, has not been right because, number one, if we look at the institutions and the government, historically mm-hmm. they never had any interest of, of African people to be competitors mm-hmm. and to be survivors over here. They control all the information, so why in the hell would we believe anything they tell us? We have no access to double-checking that research, that information. They have proven. We know there are no, no vaccines for this thing, but yet they can tell you they can start injecting people. Uh, next month or so, if you don't take it, you're talking about locking you up. I think that will be some cold decisions we're going to have to make as a people, and you're going to have to make maybe even as individuals. But I think we're more powerful. We're not organized collectively. But right now, they have already laid the groundwork that even if you don't believe our stories, they can still inject you what they want to inject you, and you don't have to say so. Or else you risk going to jail. 
This is what's coming down the pipeline, not that far away. And to the listening audience in the world, the question is, what we going to do as a people, as a segment of humanity? Knowing that their stories have been inconsistent, knowing that they have no interest in protecting the well-being of Africans and people of color, knowing that they have already rejected, based on their own research, by 2042 to 2050, they will be a minority inside this country, and they want to have that. They don't want to be in that, that position because they don't want people of color dominate quote unquote the so-called political process. I never knew of any particular forces, capitalist forces, in terms of the class question or on the race force in terms of nationalism or dealing with Europeans, where they are willing to go under a one-vote, one-man system when they are at the minority. All this is not, as the brother said, something that was coincident. It's just too ironic when Bill Gates can talk about this with precision back in 2015, and four years later you have precision on what's happening today. That's right. And the question is, they're going to impose these vaccines, and not a vaccine, because we don't even, from their own scientific method of creating a vaccine at the minimum, take two to three years to create one. So what they are injecting in us, we have nothing really to do with without this virus, so-called virus. And should we and will we take it? And if we're not, are we willing to deal and fight? Are we willing to deal and fight in relation to whatever the consequences may be? That is a question to our people that you must begin to start organizing and planning for it now in terms of what you and we can do as a whole. Are we going to accept these illusionary vaccines, which we know has no interest in terms of safeguarding the security of African people, people in general? That's true. That's true. And they have already laid the narrative down to the, to the rest of the world, particularly in the United States, that, hey, in the next couple of months, we're going to have the biggest death rate ever. And they're also saying that they are also going to hear certain areas, and Brother Hockey, you say the South, but they are also saying not just the South and the United States, but in terms of political terms, the North and South Hemisphere, they said most of the deaths are going to accelerate and really going to pick up in the Southern Hemisphere which is countries that include the continent of Africa and Latin African countries and so-called countries that are not industrialized, they say in the next couple of months that's where the real epidemic is going to take place. Why did they make that projection? How can they make that projection? And the question comes, as the brother said in the choice, what are we going to do? We are now faced with a choice. Do we fight back or don't fight back and still get annihilated? And no one want to talk about it. Pam, this your response to what the brother just said in my little narrative I just presented. Uh, the, I I concur with the points you made, brother Africa, as well as uh, you know the uh, you know the brother on the phone. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, the fact that there's a patent for this coronavirus and that it was issued in 2008 means. That it's been around for a while And uh, You know And the thing about it though I think uh, it becomes very important That in terms of the fact the, the keep in mind That Kwame Trey pointed out correctly That capitalism lies all the time 
and that it, when it, when it tells That's the right. truth, it's the result of a double lie. So, so there is a lot of research that we have to do, and that means that you've got to be do a lot of information sifting in order to find out the truth. And that speaks to the importance of the point I made earlier, that in addition to education, we need to be guided by a revolutionary ideology. An ideology, and an ideology is a set of principles that guide how you think, how you process information, how you react to certain things. And we have to have an ideology that works in our interests. One such ideology is encrumism terrorism the ideology of, uh, of my organization, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. But regardless of what it goes by, it has to be an, an ideology that works in the interests of the masses of our people. And uh, the fact that uh, capitalism sees confuse us means that we have to do a lo- much harder work of doing our research, our study, and to analyze information carefully, the sources it comes from, and look at the history of those sources. Like, uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates has been pushing uh, population control in Africa for uh, for a couple of decades now. So, uh, you know, so whatever he says, you know, you have to take with a grain of salt. You know, for example, but uh, you know, but you, but we have to have our guard up, and we must, and we must, uh, you know, analyze information very carefully, and uh, above all, get organized. Yeah, well, I just want to tell the brother, you know, you're not a conspiratorial theorist. Uh, Don't listen to that nonsense. That's what people. That's what the government wants you to believe. Uh, the points that you that you raised were both correct and sanguine. So everything you say was absolutely on the, on the mark. And of course, there's a long history in terms of uh, you know uh, bioweaponry uh, uh, use in a society. Uh, we can go all the way back to the Native Americans in terms of smallpox uh, blankets uh, that they used to infect and kill off the, the indigenous people here in North America. We all know about that. We know about Walter Bassoon, the South African cardiologist, the innovator of Ebola, HIV recombinant. We know about that. We know about Raymond Zizinski, the biochemist who innovated HIV. We know about AIDS. We know about the sort of AIDS in terms of electron microscope, looking at the AIDS virus and seeing that it wasn't it wasn't a result of nature. It was, in fact, man-made. We know about that. In fact, when we talk about overpopulation of society, keep in mind, it's very interesting in the West. This whole concept of overcrowding has been a boom the West for a long, long time, as far back as the 17th century. Uh, one of the things, there's a, there's a concept called, uh, a principle actually called the Malthusian Principle. And Malthusian was an economist or a clergy, a clergy member. And his position was there were too many people in the 17th century in, in, in the world. At that point, there was under a billion people on the whole planet. But he said there was too many people, and that removing these people would be in the interest of humanity to simply reduce, or call, as he called it, culling, uh, reduce the number of people on the planet. So this fascination in terms of reducing the number of people on the planet has been a long fascination in the West. And as it speaks to since this, this, um, this, this aberrant desire in terms of control at all costs. It doesn't matter how many people have to die. Uh, as long as they die, because the control is more important, the power is more important than human life itself. So what you're saying is not conspiratorial, and we understand it. And one other thing, and I'll close with this. 
also one of the things very interesting, and this is this is this is this is sort of suspect, but I but one of the things very interesting, and since you raised it, Donald Trump back in 2017, he was told, in fact, that the pandemic was on the way. But his response to, was to do something that was very very strange. Uh, actually, what he did was that he actually eliminated positions whose job was to over, oversee, you know, the uh, pandemics. I find that find that very very interesting. Uh, one of the people who was responsible for um, uh, for pandemics was Amber Timothy Zimmer. That was his job specifically in terms of you know um, assessing what the problems is and what the needs are in terms of preparing for a pandemic. He was fired. I mean that is very very interesting. Uh, the CIA medical intelligence unit was disbanded. Their job is to make sure the equipment exists to make sure that when the pandemic hit, that the country is safe. That job, that department was eliminated. Is that coincidental? Possibly it could be coincidental. But the mere fact that knowing how Trump thinks in terms of the xenophobia that reigns in his mind, uh, the desire in terms of killing those who are quote-unquote not fit, I have no problem in theorizing that what he did was in keeping in terms of large uh, uh, elimination of large number of people throughout the planet. And when Brother Africa talks about the fact eliminating, you know, depopulating Africa, it's been a long, long desire in terms of depopulation of Africa. ID 2020 is the latest attempt or latest plan in terms of depopulating, depopulating Africa. So clearly these people's position is that, you know, that somehow by virtue of being a white male, that somehow that uh, you're, you're somehow different in the rest of humanity and somehow that your existence is part and separate of other, of other humanity it's something that I think in the minds of these people really has some legitimacy. So in that sense, they don't see killing off humanity. They're killing off people they see as in competition with humanity. Is that, is that bizarre or not? I mean, if you stop and think about it, that's bizarre. In order for you to kill humanity, you've got to see yourself as something other than humanity. It's in and of itself, it's bizarre. So we have to understand the unique psychology in terms of these people. So what you're saying, brother, is it's not conspiratorial. Anyone who wants the information can get it. It's not difficult to obtain. If you want the information, you can get it. It's a simple question whether or not people want to know the truth. But for a lot of people, they perceive it's not that interest in wanting to know. So that is a fundamental problem. But what you're saying is right on point. Well, I and, and I guess even as we are discussing this quote-unquote covert and sometimes subtle form of warfare, you know, even as we're talking about and, and speaking about where we're getting our worldview from, that in itself is a form of warfare. The fact that we are taught how to strategize from the playbook that fits the, the, the win of the European, right? So we never have gone back to the drawing board to even understand what the African was, what it looked like for African to rule the world. And, and to be truthfully honest, you know, what we're, what we're up against, and I know I can speak this because I'm in the, I'm in the circle of some intelligent, mature African uh, brothers and sisters. But what we are up against is Natal or nature, the divine aspect forcing us to come back to our senses. Right? We are being forced to to get get to the to the to the to the ball court. We you know we we've been getting our butt kicked for so long, and we can't give up. So what we are having to do now is is produce the best of the best, and we are able to sit down and now have these conversations as some of the best of the best, being able to carry, even though they thought they were going to destroy us, they thought they were going to put us under. Here is yet another attempt 
But let us seize this and and, 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 and and remember, let's preserve what our ancestors gave us and, you know, get ready for the evolution. Because what they say, what, what don't kill you only makes you stronger. So, you know, we've seen this a plenty of time. And I, I was telling somebody else with the populace of America, it might be saddening to them. But us as black people, we've been going through hell for I don't know how long. So you can give us COVID, police vid, all these vids, and, and, and we've been going through it. So, you know, this, this shouldn't be much to us as it relates to our immunity. I just, you know, encourage everybody to, to research, to read, to, you know, not be fooled away by the people that are trying to imply you're a conspiracy theorist because they, they're talking about the 5G towers. I think it should be, you know, it should be common knowledge to think, well, hey, if you're putting this big radiation towel behind me that's emitting all this radiation, somebody's going to come down with some, some health issues, right? And, and and the fact that now we're in a capitalist world where they're placing a dollar over life itself. So we have to stop being the ones that help continue to perpetuate that, help being slaves to that to this you know paradigm and, and and come back to our senses i'm i'm convinced that this is you know part work of the ancestors i got an african reading some years ago saying that hey we need to be trying to get out of america because the ancestors were going to lay it down here they were going to lay the smack down here and i can't we we shouldn't be surprised you understand you know when we're talking about going back to africa going back to you know whether it be going back to our cultures or going back there Physically, you know, I think this should be your thing. And, you know, us as African brothers here in the Americas, we shouldn't shame the next brother or sister that's trying to go back and connect. This is what Natel or the creator, God, is forcing us to do, is to get on our thing. So thank you, brothers and sisters, for having this conversation. This is the one that we need to have in these times because a lot of our people are afraid and desperate and don't know what to do. And the best way to overcome be organized, get organized, join right. an organization that's doing something to help your people and to help make humanity better. The best way Africans overcome their fear is to join together as a unit, as an entity. And with that, you are fearless and all things are possible. So anyway, panelists, we have come to the end of this program, part two, we look at the coronavirus virus and pandemic in U.S. and the world, and we want to ask each one of y'all, start with our guests, just give us some final thoughts on this narrative that's taking place. So we're going back to you, Carla, 7244. Give me a, a general closing thought for our listening audience as we talk about this subject. Well, I, I think it's, it's a good thing that we are being forced to retreat from our capitalist duties, being on the job day-to-day, going to school, and going back inward, going back home, going back to reflect on the things that really matter. So take advantage of this time. You know, like you, like the brother said, let's 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 try to now link up with our neighbors, finding out who our neighbors are, uh, start to have these community programs where we're working together for the sake of our kids and also our elders in the community as it relates to assistance and not dependent on America or the National Guard to come in and feed you or come in and take care of you, you know, we have to put these things in our own hands. So let's just, you know, strap up and enjoy the ride, everybody. Thank you, Carla, for your contribution to today's program. Next we'll go with Brother Maurice. You'll find the thoughts for tonight. 
I just want to uh, start off saying that uh, I want to thank you, uh, thank the guest caller, man, for, for his comment. And uh, this thing about Bill Gates is no joke. It's not a conspiracy theory. Um, recently, a black, uh, a black uh, African nurse, black nurse, um, couple nurses, one nurse quit her job because of the uh, exploitation of the workers or the nurses. They're not taking the safety concerns um, serious of them. And another nurse recently, two days ago, came out and said, yeah, but, uh, this is, you know, she was coming out and speaking on her health education and, and said that this COVID-19, like the brother Ethel earlier, is a uh, basically a biological weapon. And it, and it is. And just want to make a quick point. I know we just we have closing. I just want to make this point that, you know, uh, Bill, it, it, this is not a, some people say, oh, this, this, this is a Christian. No, it, it's not a Christian. I had some, uh, some people told me that this thing about Bill Gates is just conspiracy theory. It's not. Bill Gates' father, William H. Gates, Senior, Bill Gates Senior, whatever, his dad, he was the head of the eugenics group Planned Parenthood. You know, and, and go back, he had, a, Bill Gates had a 2003 interview on PBS, and he was saying that about his family involvement in eugenics was was expensive, they did a lot of great work and all this stuff, and he talked about uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, conducting vaccine, testing vaccines on poor people or on, in Africa. And the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the kids was getting sick over the drugs, the uh, men of men fat, men of uh, men after fat drug, M E N A F R I B A C drug. The kids was getting sick. They was throwing up. They they was paralyzed, hallucinate, all types of uh, types of stuff. So this this is this is not no um that you know it's not no like the Apple brother had key said what he said. Yeah, it's not no uh, conspiracy theory. It's true. It's a fact. And it's not it's not a coincidence that all that majority of the capitalists you got Andrew Carnegie, Henry Ford, J.P. Morgan, John Harvey uh, Kellogg of the Kellogg brand cereal. All these people were eugenics, were eugenicists, and they and they were capitalists. It's not a, it's not a coincidence. So I'm gonna conclude by saying Pan Africanism or perish. We're gonna continue to perish, or we're gonna organize. Which one is it? Thank you, brother Maurice. Next, Brother Moses, your final thoughts for the night. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's been an interesting uh, panel. Um, I learned some tonight, uh, and that's good. Uh, I think, you know, that we, we have an economic struggle, a theoretical struggle, and a political struggle, the three fronts of uh, the struggle. And, and, you know, the situation is such that uh, the theoretical victory of Marxism, you know, scientific socialism, has, it's, has such that, you know, the theoretical victory forces everyone to, to, to become become for scientific socialism because because it's the only sane thing that that it is, and so the struggle still continues between the correct path and the incorrect path, and uh, we need to study, 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 and and. Uh, Continue to to work in the movement and and the dialectical relationship between ideas and practice will create. As long as we have that heart in the right place with the working class and the struggling press people of the world, as long as we keep them in in the forefront of our hearts and minds, then we will learn what we need to learn in the process of struggle. And uh, so, you know, we definitely need organization, no question. 
Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. Next, Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that we must uh, organize, keep ourselves informed, and share our knowledge with our people, and, uh, you know, and struggle for the the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. That is the ultimate solution to the problems we're facing from imperialism. And to find out more about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, you can call us at 202-246-4896 or visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thanks. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And, Brother Anthony, I also know that you're planning some kind of uh, virtual African Liberation Day on March 23rd. Can you speak just briefly a little bit about that? Yeah. Where can people find information pl- We are that? planning, yes, we are planning uh, an African Liberation Day commemoration on May 23rd, 2020. Uh, the best way to find out more about it is to either call us uh, or visit our website at wwwa aprp Dash gc.org or call us at 202-246-4896. Our theme is not yet Uhuru, not yet freedom, not yet liberation. And we'll be doing it online. Uh, please uh, check our website on a regular basis to find out more details. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And Brother Haki, you'll find it to us for tonight. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when we talk about the coronavirus, one thing that must be very, very clear, the country in such debt, this debt can never be paid off. Let's be very, very clear on that. Officially, they're saying that the, 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 um, the debt of the United States is $23 trillion. Unofficially, they're saying it's $32 trillion. Either way, they won't be able to pay that debt off. The only solution is to, is to totally destroy the system as it currently exists. And that means essentially destroying all the institutions that govern society in, in order to free themselves from debt. So let's be very, very clear on it, because since this is a capitalist society and everything is about money, uh, it, that, that debt, since it can't be repaid, is a, is, is a, is a, is a real, as far as this capitalist is concerned, it's a real detriment. And so, therefore, the only real solution in terms of getting under debt is simply to destroy the world, the world, the world system as it currently exists. And we should understand that very, very clearly. Now, when we talk about debt, one of the things we have to understand in terms of its relationship to unemployment. Now, when we talk about the Bureau of Labor Statistics, talking about 10 percent unemployment, whereas unofficially they talk about the unemployment in America being 19 percent, we have to understand clearly that this large percentage of people unemployed constitutes a threat to the system. Now, superimposed upon us, so we're talking about after, in, in, when, this, when this crisis uh, ends, we're talking about additional anywhere from 14 to 43 uh, uh, percent of the population who are currently working who will find themselves unemployed. Well, when you put all those numbers together in terms of large unemployment rate, then clearly it poses an even bigger dilemma for the system. And the question is, in the context of capitalism, if you don't have money to, to spend, then as far as capital is concerned, then you have no viable reason to exist. 
so therefore the pressure grows and grows and grows in terms of what do you do with all these people that you don't need. And so therefore then when we, we understand the role in terms of con- uh, concentration camps in terms of uh, historically how they've been used in terms of uh, uh, nations using them in terms of trying to preserve their longevity. So clearly we got some problems in front of us. And for those Africans inside who think everything is fine, there's no problem, everything is cool, think again. And, and and also I think that one of the things that when we when we think about unemployment, we think about those people who potentially in the African community can be affected by the fourteen or fourteen percent who will find themselves unemployed shortly. Clearly, uh, of that number, my, my, if I were to guess, there are probably those who say that people who don't uh, work is because they don't want to work. Not understanding the system in place which is categorically des- designed to make sure that people can't work. In other words, the more people unemployed, the higher the profits. And so when they talk about the economy heating up, what they're telling you is that there are too many people at work. This is the capitalist system. So this is a fundamental threat capitalism poses to not just people in America, but the, but the, but the world at large. So clearly, we got our work cut out for us, and we better wake up and understand this is very, very serious. And as always, Brother Africa, I conclude by saying I encourage people to unravel the matrix because without understanding what's going on, there's no conceivable way to see ourselves out. So we got our work cut out for us, and you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. And my final thoughts tonight are, one, must again, Give praise in the sea of forefathers, as Brother um, Frederick Douglass once stated, our so-called somewhat paraphrasing, when he made an important statement where power conceives rather than man, and never has, never will. And we find a tyrant in terms of knowing what he's willing to dish out is directly related to what you're willing to take. Screen up your back. You can't ride them. This statement applies to us today. When Dr. King stated, he promised you one thing, we have some difficult days ahead. We also can confirm the truthfulness to that statement. We have some difficult days to hear. As Brother Kwame Ture often often, um, cries out, the call for Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, he definitely is correct. We need to follow the lessons of our foreparents. We can win this battle. We will win this battle. And this battle not only to save African people, but all of humanity. Until next time, we see you next week on part three, a continuation of a look at the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S. and the world. You've been watching, listening to Africa on the move, and we leave you with some lessons from Brother Kwame Ture. We thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and its relationships of the 80s and relevance of the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60s and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. 
You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the early, late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement and of course the United States of America itself beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we are to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings like animals of the lower form have instincts. Human beings unlike animals of the lower form have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times under all conditions must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s the spontaneous struggle of the 60s 
the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> And one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses in drawing lessons from the 60s must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle, we say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. This aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. 
Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who once having made gains are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in a society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. 
After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Thus, thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, 
we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know us Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. 
And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. 
since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point then. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. 
But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clear poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down, we're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you.
crying out for justice. Everyone is crying out for peace. Yeah. None is crying out for justice. I don't want no
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, 
Take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed we need a new beginning let us plant the seed plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Africa 
on the move. This is our first live broadcast. Okay.